The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. We were very concerned that if Alibaba had indeed been sanctioned by the Chinese government, that it sends a chilling effect on the entire industry in China, where people will be very hesitant to follow uh, best practices that Alibaba did follow in this case and would provide essentially the Chinese government with early warning of vulnerabilities that they could use potentially for offensive purposes which, to be clear, did not happen here. But uh, if the Chinese government is getting wind of vulnerabilities before it fixes out, before anyone else is aware, that creates problems. And by the way, not China, just the Chinese government, but really any government uh, that would want to take advantage of these um, significant vulnerabilities and enhance their offensive programs. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 25th, 2022. The Cyber Safety Review Board issued its first major report this month. It was on the Log4j disaster. I know what you're asking. You're asking, wait, what the heck is the Cyber Safety Review Board? And what the heck is Log4j? Joining me in the virtual jungle studio to answer these questions and others were the Deputy Chair of the Cyber Safety Review Board, Heather Atkins, and Board Member Dmitry Alperovich. We talked about what the board is, where it comes from, how it's composed, and what it does, and we talked about Log4j, why it started with this particular cybersecurity incident, how the board went about doing its investigation, what it found, and what it recommended. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 25th. Atkins and Alperovich talk about the Cyber Safety Review Board and Log4j. So, Heather, I want to start with the nature of the institution in question, because for a lot of people, the idea that the CSRB has issued a report on the Log4j vulnerability we start with, before we get to the impenetrable uh, nature of the issue, we have the question of what the hell is the CSRB. So let's start there. This is the first, I think, the first output of this group. What is it and what is its mandate? Well, it's a great question. And uh, thank you for uh, having us on to talk through uh, exactly what it is. So the Cyber Safety Review Board is a board put together to look at cybersecurity issues, um, in particular incidents. And the idea of putting together something like this has been around for a long time. Um, As an industry, we've been talking about it. We are all very cognizant that there is a corollary here in the transportation sector, uh, the NTSB, who looks at aviation uh, train, car accidents, et cetera, with the idea of bringing better safety to transportation. And so as an industry, we've been thinking about, like, could we do something similar for cybersecurity to perhaps uh, start to undermine some of the big problems that we've had in cybersecurity? You know, people are losing their data online every day. We have governments being hacked. We have a, you know, a, a kind of a national issue around the theft of intellectual property. So one of the, you know, this idea has been around for a long time. 
Last year, President Biden issued an executive order. This is Executive Order uh, uh, 14028 on improving the nation's cybersecurity. And they put forward the idea of actually establishing this board formally. It is in the Department of Homeland Security under CISA. It is an independent board, um, but really designed to kind of get at this question of, you know, can we do better by understanding failure? And just to be clear, in your day job, you are anything but an employee of the Department of Homeland Security. Mm-hmm. Talk a bit about, first of all, uh, who you are, and mm-hmm. secondly, I, I guess, how you got roped into being the uh, deputy uh, or vice chair of this board and and kind of who the other members are, I mean, I, not to list them, but to characterize them. So the board is 15 members, and it is a mix of people in the public sector and people in the private sector. It was really important to bring together uh, a blended viewpoint, people who work on public policy, people who have a background in the law, and then technologists like myself. My day job is as vice president of security engineering at Google. That's really complicated. I mostly just tell people I keep the, the hackers out of Google. That's the easiest way to explain it. And full disclosure, yeah. uh, Google does support lawfare in a number of respects. Yeah. And so, you know, like myself, there are other members of uh, the private sector who, in their personal capacity and as special government employees, participate on this independent board. So I take off my Google hat and put on my uh, CSRB hat uh, as we do some of this work. My day-to-day job is embroiled in many of these issues, and I can see the challenge that that companies and organizations all over the world are having. So I'm super excited to be able to bring some of that uh, to the table. Uh, but like I said, we have public sector, so we have many parts of the U.S. government involved. There are other technology companies, uh, cybersecurity companies on the board as well, and including my colleague here, Dmitry Alperovich. So Dmitry, uh... I want to ask you as a preliminary matter about the parallel to the NTSB, because it seems to me, you know, it's it's a compelling one, but it's also quite inexact in the sense that the NTSB is, first of all, investigates things over extremely long periods of time with an idea that, you know, the proper amount of air disaster is zero. And we're starting from a point of view of extreme safety in air travel. And whenever something happens, there is an NTSB investigation with the idea that something must have gone terribly wrong because that should never have happened. And I don't know anybody in the cybersecurity arena who thinks that the, you know, sort of like, we should be getting to zero in this in the world of vulnerabilities or cyber intrusions, or that every incident is reflective of a, a you know of something that shouldn't have happened, and that we should investigate until the point in which we know why this particular airplane failed, even if it's at the bottom of an ocean somewhere. So, talk to me a little bit about where the parallel works and where the parallel doesn't work. That's a great point. So. As you mentioned, a lot of differences with NTSB. In particular, the primary difference is that security is not safety. You know, in safety, we don't necessarily focus much attention on the fact that you have continuous stream uh, on a daily basis of people that are trying to mess with airplanes. So, you know, yes, we have terrorism threats that we are concerned about, although primarily that's not a responsibility of the NTSB, of course to deal with. Um, other um, security agencies are more focused on that issue. In cybersecurity, the, the very problem is that you have bad people, criminals, nation states, uh, activists and the like that are every day trying to expose vulnerabilities, introduce vulnerabilities, perhaps through insider actions and, and the like. So that is uh, uh, one essential difference. The other is really about the structure of the organization, of course, NTSB is almost 100 years old as an institution, has a huge staff and, and, and codified in law. 
Um, so Cyber Safety Review Board is, is just a, a tiny baby at this point. Um, we got started in late February, organized as a board, and we derive our authorities, if you will, from, from the executive order, so not codified in law, and mostly based right now on the volunteer model. So we don't have uh, you know, subpoena authorities to compel companies or other organizations to provide us with information. So far, it's worked well, but um, uh, we'll have to see how that moves forward. Lock4j in many ways was um, one of the easiest um, investigations to do because you didn't kind of have a single victim, a single company that um, had a huge failure. It was a systematic issue that impacted nearly everyone. So almost no one really was concerned about looking like, you know, they have failed the system and, um, uh, and did something wrong. So I think we got a lot more voluntary cooperation uh, from industry and governments, um, then uh, we might uh, get to perhaps in other cases. So we'll need to look at whether the voluntary model works um, going forward. But um, speaking of this report, we had amazing amount of responses. We had over 80 organizations that have provided information, including, by the way, a number of governments, a number of allied governments like the UK government, the Israeli government, but also the Chinese government. And, you know, I think this speaks a lot about the, the fortitude of this board and its members that we really wanted to make sure that we left no stone unturned and that we would pursue every line of inquiry. And there was a lot of questions about what the go- Chinese government knew and did not know as far as this vulnerability is concerned. It was discovered, of course, by a, a Chinese researcher at Alibaba. And uh, we wanted to get some answers from the Chinese government and we submitted a response and we got an official response back that answered a number of questions. They didn't answer, unfortunately, all of our questions. Uh, but nevertheless, it was a very, very positive development. So yes, uh, some similarities with NTSB, some some differences. This first report did have a time frame that the president asked us to keep to, which was 90 days. We actually, it was too short. So we ended up uh, exceeding it by a little bit. But um you know, going forward, we'll have to look at whether we constrain ourselves by any time frame. As you, as you rightly point out, NTSB does not have a time limit. Its investigations can uh, last for years. It's probably unlikely that cyber investigations will last that long. I mean, we're not retrieving black boxes from the bottom of the Atlantic and having to reconstruct airplanes. So the task is in some ways easier uh, from, from a just a uh, workload perspective, but, you know, 90 days, I, I think most board members uh, agreed uh, was way too short. All right. So with that, let's turn to, and I want to come back to the the uh, response from government's angle a little bit later, but uh, why Log4j, you know, when people think of major cyber incidents over the last several years, those are not a sequence of characters that come to all that many lips, although it's certainly, you know, a very serious incident. Why did uh, the board, I should say, why did the, the board ask, started with this because the president asked you to, but what, but why was this a good first project, Heather? What's the, what, what was the logic of doing an initial, the inaugural investigation on, on this particular subject? Well, well, first off, let, let's just talk about what Log4j is. Log4j is a software framework, and it allows developers who code in a programming language called Java to easily integrate logging features into their code. And because it is so easy, it's used by many thousands, maybe even millions of developers all over the world who need to incorporate this functionality. And just just for those who for whom the term logging is uh, not mm-hmm. embedded in their DNA. Uh, this means the ability of a piece of software to record what is it is doing and what is being done with it, right? Exactly. So like when you log into your bank, your bank logs the fact that you logged into your bank, right? Exactly. So basically all over all kinds of systems all over the world doing all kinds of things, there is a logging protocol that was written a while back in 2013 or something uh, that is now integrated all over the place 
called log4j. That's right. The feature that that became a problem becomes integrated in uh, 2013. And because log4j is used in so many places, we see it in cloud services, televisions, cars. Um, I heard a rumor at one point that somebody had found an instance of log4j in space. It is uh, kind of everywhere. And so a vulnerability in this piece of software that is so ubiquitous on the planet becomes a problem the moment that that vulnerability becomes known. And that is what happened in December, uh, a vulnerability in Log4j that had been reported to the developers uh, was discovered and people became aware of it very quickly and it began being exploited very quickly. And because there is always this natural race between knowing about a vulnerability in infrastructure and fixing it before it can be attacked. It presented the whole world uh, who does IT and does security. I mean, in you know December 10th, 2021, what you had were you know many millions of IT people all over the world rallying to do the exact same thing at the exact same time. And so studying that event, that momentous event, seemed like an incredible opportunity for the board as we were tackling our first review. Also, because we knew that we could look at something, you know, an an issue that was incredibly important, not just in this one incident, but in every vulnerability that's found in any piece of software, those patterns are going to exist. And so that seemed like a great thing for us to do. Um, As Dimitri mentioned, there also wasn't a single victim. So in setting up the board for the first time, we were going to be able to take the opportunity to put in really, you know, a really great approach to doing a review without having, you know, to worry about the sensitivities that might come for us one day around, you know, will the victim talk to us? How do we, you know, carefully handle their data, et cetera. So um, it all came together. And, you know, I think like Dimitri said, it, it, it was an incredible review. We had a uh, great success with uh, chatting with people. All right. So before we get to the nature of the review, Dimitri, describe for us the nature of the vulnerability. The, the word vulnerability is a little bit abstract. What does this vulnerability enable somebody to do? So if you were inclined to exploit it, what could you do to all these systems that are logging things? Yeah, so the challenge with Log4j, as Heather mentioned, is that it's so ubiquitous because it is a library that uh, is used in so many commercial products and so many free and open source products. Um, It's been around for many, many years. And in 2013, uh, the uh, development team, who I should mention is a volunteer team that's part, part of the Apache software foundation and nonprofits. You have these developers that are working on these open source projects within Apache Foundation with Log4j being one. They're not being paid for this. They're sort of doing this out of their own passions and to help the community. And they introduce a feature into the the code that basically allows the library to be dynamically extended with additional functionality where essentially you can start executing code based on kind of what you're, you're going to get in the data that's going to be supplied to the log library. Just for, for listeners for whom that does not sound scary, uh, the ability to execute code is what attackers always want, right? Because, that's right? because once you're on somebody's computer and you're executing code, you can presumably make that computer do anything you want to. So the the scary thing about that is this is you have a library that's supposed to do logging, but all of a sudden you have a vulnerability that can allow somebody to make the computer do something else. That's right. And fast forward, you know, this was introduced in 2013. Fast forward years later, a security researcher at Alibaba looks at that code and realizes that you can send basically a, a set of characters into any application that's using log4j. And if those set of characters get logged by the library, then you can basically execute random code on that machine. And, you know, as you mentioned, potentially take it over to perform any task you want. Essentially it could be the equivalent of opening up the door into the network of the company that's running that vulnerable code 
and uh, letting someone in to steal other data from other systems could be used for destruction of systems and data. So really, really serious problem. And the challenge is that it will work differently in every application because every application kind of decides what gets logged. And, um, you know, in, in some ways, the advantage um, the defenders had in this particular case is that it was really hard for attackers to figure out what actually gets logged in a particular application. It's not something that's easy to figure out from the sort of external perspective. So how to exploit the vulnerability may depend on a case-by-case basis, depending on the application that is being used. Um, So even though in certain cases uh, with popular applications like Minecraft, for example, where this was first identified as an issue uh, back in December of last year, it was very easy to figure out what gets logged and, and people started sending it everywhere. With, with others, it, it was much more difficult. So that's why we perhaps didn't see as much exploitation activity as we would have otherwise, because um, it's, it's much more difficult for attackers to figure it out. They have to really focus on exploiting particular vo- uh, applications. So the high-end actors, sort of the nation states that are going to be spending resources on this for many, many years are going to do that. But typical criminal groups um, uh, and hacktivists may, may not necessarily engage in that type of deep research, spending months um, to try and discover uh, how to get into a particular network, because that's not the model. The model is to do this at scale, not not to get into one specific target, typically. So that, that was one advantage. But, you know, this was effectively a feature that was misused by the, uh, the attackers um, and the feature that was introduced without uh, a lot of considerations back in 2013. Okay, so I want to talk about the review you have a, a a vulnerability that is uh, potentially extreme, although it does require a deep degree of, of research and intense kind of effort to exploit effectively. It is distributed across enormous numbers of systems and software packages doing all kinds of things all over the world, and maybe some of them not in the world. Heather, What's the investigative strategy for thinking about how to NTSB that kind of a disaster? The first thing was to come up with a hypothesis of what our questions were. How did the vulnerability get introduced? That was a really big question for us because we wanted to study what could we do differently to help a developer making that decision the next time. And in this case, what we learned was that they had made the choice. They'd made a very thoughtful choice to accept a community contribution. They had followed all their processes and ended up um, including this um, exploitable uh, feature. So that was question number one. Like, how did it get there? What were the processes that enabled that? We had a second line of inquiry around the discovery of the vulnerability itself and how that was disclosed to the Apache Software Foundation who manages Log4j. And there we found that, you know, the Alibaba reporter who had found it followed all the best practices. We found that Apache started working on the vulnerability and they did so in the open. And then it became known publicly because they were working on it in the open. We were also curious how responders, how organizations, companies, the government learned about the vulnerability and how they responded. That was another line of inquiry. And then we had additional lines of inquiry around, you know, just generally how does open source software work? How does the vulnerability development processes work, et cetera? So because it was such a big investigation, we chunked it up into these different groups and assigned people into the groups to chat with organizations who were experts about this. And like Dimitri mentioned, we did speak with over 80 organizations. Some of those were in-person discussions. Some of them uh, were data calls. So we would ask for a particular set of data. Um, and I think there the kind of interesting thing is that, you know, people were very enthusiastic about participating. You know, we, we got a lot of data back through all of these lines of inquiry. And then we synthesized. We kind of pulled it all together. What are the key points? What are the key findings? What are the facts we want to include that will be helpful? And then, you know, eventually uh, developing out the recommendations. 
All right. So, Dimitri, you referred earlier to the fact that this was uh, discovered by an Alibaba employee. Alibaba is, of course, a Chinese company. There was a question as to Alibaba's compliance with uh, PRC law. What is the significance from from your all's investigative perspective of the the authoritarian angle in general here, but the China angle in particular? Yeah, so the board really focused on that issue because um, we wanted to answer a couple of questions uh, from the outset. One, there were a lot of rumors and sort of uh, random information out there before we started our review that when the vulnerability became known on December 9th, that was actually not the first time it was um, being exploited, that there had been exploitation by various nefarious actors prior to December 9th. So we wanted to try to get as conclusive an answer on that as possible. Did it leak beforehand? Was it shared with someone, perhaps the Chinese government, and they were able to take advantage of that? And we were able to pretty conclusively determine that uh, there had, had been no evidence of um, exploitation prior to the public disclosure. So that was a good thing. So no one appeared to have had uh, prior knowledge or at least did not use that vulnerability uh, for exploitation before it became publicly known. And just to be clear on that, because that strikes me as a very important finding, although it seems to me to important to, to be important to be clear about what it is is and isn't. You did not find that there was no prior exploitation, right? You found that there was no evidence available that there was exploitation prior to the reporting. How confident are you that the gap between those two are is narrow? In other words, how confident are you that it didn't happen rather than that you can't substantiate that it did happen? Yeah, that's a great question. So obviously proving a negative is always incredibly difficult and and in this particular domain, nearly impossible. But what we did do is we went out to all the parties that had claimed that there was exploitation and uh, collected the data from them on the nature of that exploitation. In particular, Cloudflare was one of the companies that said they had seen some activity in early December before the vulnerability was publicly known. And uh, in working with Cloudflare, we were able to determine that that activity, which they did see, was actually related to Alibaba researcher testing the vulnerability early on and was not an exploitation by by any other party. Um, So that was not sort of uh, an indication of the vulnerability being out in the wild. And then the other thing that we did, and, and that speaks sort of to the unique capabilities of the board, is we went to the U.S. intelligence community. And in particular, we have Rob Joyce as the uh, head of cyber at the NSA, uh, was able to look at what the intelligence community at the classified level have, and we were able to get a declassified public assessment from them on this issue that they did not see, using the full capabilities of the U.S. intelligence community, any exploitation from the top threat actors that we would typically be concerned about, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, of this vulnerability prior to its public disclosure. So given those lines of inquiry, we are pretty confident that the vulnerability was not out in the wild being exploited by various actors prior to its um, public release. But um, obviously, it's impossible to prove that conclusively. But uh, we're, we're quite, quite, quite confident of that. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, so I cut you off. Uh, the other... The other elements yeah. of the PRC angle to this 
involve the question of whether there was, uh, you know, some prior reporting to the PRC government, right? That's right. Uh, one of the things that the board was very concerned about is public reports, which were not officially confirmed by the Chinese government, uh, but they were distributed in, in part in Chinese state-owned media, that Alibaba had been sanctioned by the government uh, for not disclosing the vulnerability to the government as required by law within two days, uh, 48 hours of, uh, of discovery. And what we were able to establish is that Alibaba actually did everything right as far as the uh, standards of responsible disclosure are concerned. They reached out to Apache when they discovered this vulnerability back on November 24th. Uh, Apache took the report seriously. They started working on a fix. And Alibaba, we were able to establish, did not uh, contact the Chinese government until December 13th. So not only passed the two-day deadline uh, for discovery, but even past the two days of, of the vulnerability becoming known on December 9th. And we were very concerned that if Alibaba had indeed been sanctioned by the Chinese government, that it sends a chilling effect on the entire industry in China, where people will be very hesitant to follow uh, best practices that Alibaba did follow in this case, and would provide essentially the Chinese government with early warning of vulnerabilities that they could use potentially for offensive purposes, which to be clear, did not happen here. But uh, if the Chinese government is getting wind of vulnerabilities before fixes out, before anyone else is aware, that creates problems. And by the way, not China, just the Chinese government, but really any government uh, that would want to um, take advantage of these um, significant vulnerabilities and enhance their offensive programs. And we were trying to get an answer on this point from the Chinese government. And unfortunately, they did not respond to our inquiries on that front. They were not, uh, they chose not to confirm whether or not uh, Alibaba had been sanctioned because of um, their lack of early disclosure. And, you know, the board uh, expressed uh, deep concerns about this issue, both the law in general that requires this early disclosure and uh, the fact that the Chinese government is not willing to dispel stories about, you know, what exactly happened to Alibaba in this particular situation. And, and the board does feel that, you know, organizations should be following Alibaba's examples and doing responsible disclosure, reaching out to the party that um, has the vulnerability, helping them develop the, the, the fix and not giving early heads up to, to anyone, really, until that fix is available. All right. So, Heather, uh, there are other governments involved here, too, that you guys sought information from. What is it that you did get answers to from the Chinese? And what questions did you have? And what countries did you, other countries, did you receive what sort of information from? So in recognizing that the organizations that dealt with this particular vulnerability are really diverse, um, you know, companies work differently from one another, governments responded differently from one another. So we reached out to the NCSC, which is in the United Kingdom, and we reached out to the Israeli government as well and met with both of them and asked what their experiences were. How did they learn about the vulnerability what kinds of techniques did they use to discover where did they have the log4j software? And, you know, how did they respond? What worked well? What didn't, you know, in the hope that we would be able to surface some of the best practices uh, that worked well for them. And, you know, in, in, in both cases, we learned some, some incredible things about, uh, you know, how Israel's put together, you know, kind of a, a hotline almost for, you know, parts of, the, of their government to call into and get help. And so you'll, you'll find those in the report. But um, I think it, it really spoke to the fact that everybody recognizes this is kind of a, a global ecosystem uh, problem and that everybody uh, is trying different things. And we'll, we'll find the, the techniques on the software security side that work best. Um, and then, as you know, we've sort of discussed at length here, we did reach out to the Chinese government and uh, posed to them uh, a set of questions, you know, in particular, uh, we wanted to know, you know, how Alibaba had reported this in, uh, how, how they had known about it, and, and when did the government find out? And it, it was that last question that we uh, got a lot of good information from them on, and, and it's in the report that they learned about it uh, from Alibaba on December 13th. So 
I think it underlines, as Dimitri pointed out before, that participation in the board, you know, is voluntary. And, you know, we had great partnerships with uh, all kinds of entities and, you know, some that would be surprising to people. So it actually sounds like a, a lot of people did a lot of the right things in connection with this, both in cooperation with the your investigation, but also as an antecedent matter when the vulnerability uh, cropped up in the first place. So Alibaba, a company that's you know widely suspected of all kinds of things in the West, reports it in a timely fashion and may have even uh, violated uh, Chinese law and been sanctioned in order to do so. The Chinese government, uh, while it may have sanctioned Alibaba, also provided some level of cooperation with you guys. 80 companies are very eager to uh, share their experiences. And Apache in fact, creates, uh, responds relatively quickly uh, and doesn't dawdle in dealing with the problem. It seems like for a bad news story, there's a lot of good news here, at least in the international cyber community's incident response. I think that's right. One of the big takeaways you know, for me in, in my professional capacity has been the resiliency of our, of our ecosystem. Um, what we see on December 9th and then December 10th is a rallying call for the industry. We see a lot of discussion in social media, private Slack channels. Uh, the U.S. government's JCDC comes together. You know, there's a massive community response here. And I, I do believe that the immediate action of organizations all over the world is one of the reasons why we didn't see this become a catastrophe. It was a difficult bug to exploit, but I think even more than that, people are very resilient in getting this fixed very quickly. And we do note that there was some exploitation in those early days, December 9th, December 10th. You know, we began to see massive scanning all over the internet. We note this in the report. Uh, some some fairly phenomenal levels of exploitation, some of it just testing and and some of it cryptocurrency miners who want to take over people's systems and mine cryptocurrency. And then we see that escalate over the the days and weeks to more sophisticated, dangerous attacks, ransomware, uh, nation state actors. On December twentieth, the the Belgian government comes out and uh, says that their Ministry of Defense has been affected. Uh, there's some news reporting on that. But for the most part, I think the quick action and the resiliency to clean up kind of minor skirmishes very quickly means that, you know, we didn't have any critical infrastructure get taken down. We didn't have anybody kind of come forward and report that they'd had major theft of private information sort of outages across critical infrastructure, the sorts of things that people had been uh, foreseeing as a result of something, you know, so widespread. But again, I think it might be because we've had so many recent big incidents like solar winds, other vulnerabilities that have come forward that companies, organizations are putting better plans in place. They're more resilient against attack. Um, they're more resilient when they do get attacked. That seems to be a, a really important strategy that you know, we should emphasize more as a community. But I think you're right. I think there's a lot of good news here. We learned a lot about what we want to fix. We learned a lot about our failure and, and what we want the systems to do better next time. But I'm, uh, I'm, I'm encouraged by the good news in the report. If I can add here, and one of the things we should point out is that CISA really did a phenomenal job of working with researchers one of them is uh, Kevin Beaumont, a security researcher in the UK that started very early on identifying the products that have Log4j, the vulnerable version of Log4j, and listing those out on Twitter and, and, and various other fora so that people can actually appreciate, do they even have vulnerable products in their environment? And then CISA started working with him and others to compile that into an official CISA 
list of vulnerable products. They put it on a GitHub and that became a really valuable resource for the world to start looking at what do they have in terms of different applications and what do they need to be concerned about. And then it also created, frankly, added pressure on some vendors to start releasing updates in their products with the updated Log4j library to uh, remove the vulnerability. The one area that we also focused on in our fact-finding mission, though, is how did it leak? Because uh, the exploitation began on December 9th when a researcher from another Chinese firm, Boundary X, started publishing exploit code and, and, and letting the world know that this vulnerability exists. At the time, the patch was not yet officially released by Apache. So we did have a failure uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, there was early exploitation that did occur and uh, an early discovery uh, before people really had an opportunity to mitigate the problem uh, with an official fix. And we looked uh, pretty hard at that issue. We were not able to conclusively determine how Boundary X discovered this vulnerability because they were actually one of the few companies that did not respond to our inquiries. But looking at the rest of the timeline, and Heather actually did uh, much of the great work on this part of the investigation, we were able to determine that Apache, when they received the notice, the original notice from Alibaba on November 24th, and they started working on a fix, they started working on that fix sort of in public view because they have a public source code repository on GitHub. They have a public issue tracker. So while they weren't labeling things as we're fixing the vulnerability in, in, in those um, work streams, it would have been easy for others to look at that code and determine that it was fixing a particular problem. And it's likely that that's exactly what happened here, that people were able to reverse engineer it from this work in progress. It was done in public view and then start um, publicizing it, which led to, to expo- early exploitation of this. So one of the key recommendations that we had uh, that was very specific to, to this issue is that all open source projects should consider that when they're working in public to fix a vulnerability, they're in their code or they're labeling in their issue tracker, that that effectively makes a vulnerability publicly well-known and they should just go ahead and publicize it as, as being an issue so that everyone could start thinking through how do they mitigate it, even if the fix is not yet fully available. Yeah, so you mentioned this as a, as a major recommendation. What are the other major recommendations of the report in an environment that is oddly positive given the magnitude of, of, of the problem? Who should be doing what differently in the future? So we had a huge range of recommendations, and you have to appreciate, you know, that you mentioned this uh, at the beginning, Ben, that when NTSB does an investigation into an airplane crash, they don't have to do the basics in terms of the recommendations. They, they they don't need to tell the world that pilots should really get training on an aircraft before they fly it, right? That's uh, We have experience, 100 years of experience in having the processes to deal with that issue, airplane flying. Yeah, this is a really important point. Yeah, and we are really starting from the basics. So some of the recommendations that we have have been pretty generic because uh, the entire ecosystem is quite bad at the moment, right? So one of the recommendations, for example, has been on education, that we need to start working with universities and colleges, including community colleges, to start incorporating cyber uh, security education into computer science courses so that developers, as they're getting released out of our education systems, actually know how to do secure coding and are thinking through ways in which their code can be misused. And Heather, you know, maybe, you you know, you spent a lot of time on the recommendation sections as well. Maybe you can go through some of the others that we have uh, because they touch on a lot of parts of the ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, I think first and foremost, um, we expect Log4j as a vulnerability to be a problem, you know, for probably the next decade or so. Pause there and explain why, because a lot of people are going to think, wait a minute, it was discovered you know, nine months ago, and we just heard you say, you know, Alibaba was cooperative. Yeah. They, you know, Apache patched it. Why are we expecting a decade's worth of further mm-hmm. problems? This all comes down to the software lifecycle, how software is maintained and deployed. Um, because Log4j is sort of everywhere, there are, you know, 
places where we still haven't discovered it yet. So organizations are going to be finding it in their infrastructure for quite some time. The other thing that happens is as organizations manage their IT infrastructure, they sometimes accidentally reintroduce problems. And we call this the, the software regression. So we will expect to see software regressions for some time as well. So we, we need people to stay vigilant. Um, a good comparison here is uh, a major vulnerability that came out in OpenSSL. This is another very popular uh, library that's deployed everywhere. There was a vulnerability in 2014 that was very damaging. And uh, a recent study, I think released in 2020 or 2021, showed that 25% of systems on the internet still had this vulnerability. And it's been six or seven years, right? So uh, we know it's going to be a problem. But I think coming back to other recommendations, how we do software is very important. The open source software community is a volunteer organization. We often think of this software being free because you don't um, have to buy it. But in fact, any software you incorporate into your infrastructure needs to be maintained. We need to help these developers in, in the communities get trained. We need to give them the kind of tools that help them build secure software. They need support. You know, they do not have millions and millions of dollars of funding from a corporation uh, that owns the code. So one of the things that we've recommended is really governments, corporations, people who rely on this software getting much more involved in supporting that community to raise the bar of security all around. And one of the big topics that comes up in this is when we produce the software, we should know what's inside of it. And this concept of having a software bill of materials so that an organization can see, I've received this piece of software, I know what's inside, so that when there's a vulnerability, I will know that I need to do something about that. Again, this is a topic we've been talking in the industry about for a very, very long time. It's starting to feel like a basic requirement to many people, but the tooling, the adoption isn't there and the support for the open source community to incorporate that into how they build software isn't there. So a lot of our very concrete recommendations come down to just the very basics of how developers are trained, how they're building software, how they deploy it, and how do we as organizations know where it lives so that we know how to maintain it over its full life cycle. And I feel like if we could tackle that as an industry in the next five to 10 years, we would raise the bar really high around, you know, maintaining good, safe, reliant systems that are difficult to hack into. You know, if I can add, uh, you know, some of your listeners may be li listening to this right now and saying, well, you know, here's another report that gives uh, recommendations. And we've had many others like the Solarium Commission, of course, and various think tanks um, that have produced recommendations. And, you know, they've all been, I think, uh, terrific in terms of what they've recommended. Some of them, like the Salarium Commission in particular, has done a really good job of implementing them in, in law. And some of your listeners may be wondering, well, what's what's different about CSRB uh, and its recommendations? And I think it's worth pointing out that one of the things that's really unique here, uh, really two things. One, that we start with a fact-finding, establishing what actually happened, and tying the recommendations to uh, the problems that we have uncovered, like the you know, early d disclosure through unwitting disclosure through development of the fix in public, which which helps to raise the prioritization, I think, um, uh, of, of some of these recommendations, because you can clearly see a problem and a potential solution to that problem. But the other really important way in which I think CSRB can be different uh, from some of these other institutions is that we, of course, have an incredible team, not just from private sector members, but very senior officials from government. So Rob Silvers is the undersecretary for policy at DHS, who is the chair of our board. We have Rob Joyce from the NSA. Uh, we have Brian Vordren, who runs the cyber division at the FBI. We have Chris Inglis as the national uh, cyber director uh, and Chris Derusha as, as the federal CISO and, and some other representatives of DOJ and DOD. And some of the recommendations people may note as reading our report actually are recommendations to those people. So, for example, the NCD, the National Cyber Director, has uh, recommendations that um, we um, 
wanted uh, them to take on and try to push forward, particularly on the education piece. Uh, the federal government and, and Krista Rusha has an, a set of recommendations. And the beauty of this is that you have the people that will ultimately have the responsibility of taking this on, being part of the board and working those recommendations. So um, I think we have a much higher chance of um, those recommendations actually being uh, taken on and uh, and work to their ultimate conclusion uh, because of the vested interests of the board members here to get this done. And I, I think that's really unique part of the structure of the uh, CSRB is, uh, is having that really phenomenal representation of very, very senior government officials, uh, great private sector members as well um, that can both do the investigative piece, recommendations, and ultimately have the responsibility in their day jobs of actually getting those recommendations implemented. So what's your next project? Well, uh, right now the board, uh, the president has mandated in his executive order that after the first review, the board actually look at reviewing itself and determine what went right in the first review, what didn't, what recommendations we can make about how CSRB can evolve in the future and, and borrow lessons perhaps from other organizations like the NTSB. So that we're in the midst of, of that review right now, and hopefully uh, there will be a public report talking about how the organization needs to evolve as well. And uh, you know, after that, we, we will take a look at uh, kind of what what other big uh, issues evolve. And you know, we don't have a list at the moment, and and I think um, you know we don't necessarily want to go back in time and look at something that's very old, and it will be very difficult to establish a fact pattern. On that front, a lot of people asked us why we didn't take up solar winds, uh, which um, the executive order mentioned as potentially being our first review. And in consultation with Secretary Mayorkas, who tasks the board, and John Easterly, the director of CISA, we decided that solar winds kind of had a lot of history on it at that point. A lot of things were well known, and too much time has passed to really get to the bottom of some things potentially. So Lock for j was much more recent and was a much better fit for the first review. But going forward, it's really going to be based on uh, what happens out in the world. Uh, you know, if another big attack or vulnerability ha- occurs tomorrow, then that's probably going to be a good candidate for the board to look at. Uh, but we don't have uh, you know, a list at the moment. It's sort of just like NTSB does not know which plane crash they're going to work on next. Uh, it's going to be determined by circumstances in life. Uh, it's very similar for us as well. Heather, Dimitri, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Hey, folks, you need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast. And if you are not already a material supporter, you can become one at patreon.com slash lawfare. That's, if you didn't catch it the first time, patreon.com slash lawfare. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>